Okay, church, today's sermon is aimed at refocusing us on the glorious truth of God's love this morning and our imaging of his love towards others. As we end this year and go into the new year, I thought I'd bring a word of exhortation to see us strengthened in our commitment as God's people. People need the Lord. That's not just a great song from the 80s, from Steve Green, but it's true. People need the Lord. They need to see the love of God in the community of the local church. Think about the times people have had you in their homes and when they prayed for you or when they took you out for a meal or you out for a coffee just to encourage you. Think of how many of our churches in America think they have a loving community, but they're devoid of truth, as if you can have love and truth separated somehow. They go together. They are met perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Many want a version of Jesus that's adjusted to their worldly ambitions. The kind of community, it's not real gospel community where people are focused on obeying, obeying Christ, but affirmed in Christ as they pursue their kingdom first. Maybe you're here this morning and you're running low. Your tank is low. Your batteries are low. Maybe you came here today and your mindset perhaps is just all wrong and self-centered. Maybe you came here today and you're not sure how to approach uh, things as a Christian and you're on fumes. Today I want to, to see, I want you to see from God's word that we as the church have a ministry of love that includes living in the truth and striving to do others good in Christ Jesus. If we do not get this fundamental work right, we might as well pack it up and go home. We cannot get this wrong. We need more of Christ, not less. We need more of the power of the Holy Spirit, not less. We need less of this world and less of ourselves. You may think you exist to pursue a more comfortable life. You may not say it like that, but that's how you function. Today, I want to remind you that that is not true of you as a believer. You are saved to live uncomfortable lives for the glory of Jesus. And the irony is that in living uncomfortable for Jesus, you find comfort. Because there's no peace and no comfort like walking with Christ. Today, we wouldn't think much of the typical mindset of the lifestyle that simply goes to work every day, treating our home as our, our you know, getaway, keeping most people out, and rarely inviting anyone on a regular basis that would require us to prepare something for them. It's not our culture, beloved, to go spend emotional energy you know, that comes with caring with people, caring for people in conversation, on the, you know, particularly on the condition of their soul. That is not our culture. But that is that culture of the world. We are to be the church. We are not to be self-centered. The opportunities to be different from the culture in this department are not small. We have loads of opportunities to be different. Imagine our local churches not only faithful in orthodox doctrine, that's the foundation, but orthodox in application and in practice. 
How did you approach this gathering this morning? Think of how many went to a gathering this morning and the gathering uh, was not the most important thing for them, but the stuff they really wanted to get to after church. They're not thinking of ways to show up early, help out, and then stick around to care for others, but thinking more about being comfortable. That's what we do. It's easy to give into that if we get our eyes off of Jesus. Think of our culture and growing citizen, our growing citizenship that has lost empathy and the ability to have conversations due to the effects of staring at tablets and phones. Heaven help us. Love for neighbors is tough when we're constantly scrolling. It's hard to build care for others when one minute you're reading about a hurricane and the next second you're watching cat videos. Consider today how universities are offering classes to students on, quote, adulting. They used to call those courses interpersonal relationship skills courses. These courses on relationships today, ironically, are offered online. Today, it is quite normal for churches to foster an environment of consumerism and even say inconsistent things like, attend our church online. I'm not trying to be snarky, but uh, you have to be in attendance to attend. You have to be near the fold to smell like the sheep. Amen? There's no such thing as attending online for church. You can watch the service, but you're not amongst the people. I'm afraid that many think their swipes and their clicks online towards others are ways of showing love that that actually, rather than being involved with people. And more than that, there's a deeper issue at play, and that's love for Christ in the church. Christ Jesus, the Bible reveals, is God incarnate. God, who is one in essence, but mysteriously three in person, Father, Son, and Spirit. He came to us in the person of the Son, adding to himself human nature, body and soul, without sin, to redeem us by dying on the cross as the God-man, fully satisfying God's just wrath and forgiving any sinner who would turn from their sins, turn from themselves, and turn to Jesus instead for salvation. God's amen. The gospel is stated we should say amen. God's love is in person and his love is live. It's in person. It's in person. It's incarnate in Christ. It's incarnational. It entered into our experience and serves us. He served us like no other. And so when the church loses sight of Christ, she loses sight of how to love one another and those who are not believers. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew provided it's on page 1070. We'll help you to follow along as we go through God's word this morning. We need hearts changed by the gospel to live out uh, this life, this new life before others. And that's what Hebrews as a book has been reminding the reader about over and over in its pages. Hebrews was written to a suffering group of predominantly Jewish believers who were being tempted in their flesh to give up the call to follow Jesus and live out more comfortable uh, lives under Jewish norms. 
The letter is a warning to never go back to, ba- to, to Judaism, which confessionally rejects Christ. And more than that, the heart of the matter is about not forsaking Christ for this present age. That's the real nub of the book. Not forsaking Christ for the comfortableness of this present age. Why would I ever try to preach you on to be comfortable in this age? That's antichrist. These people knew imprisonment. They knew physical abuse. Let's just, let's sympathize and have some mercy for them, okay? They knew imprisonment, physical abuse, and confiscation of their property because they were Christian. And the author has shown them beautifully over and over again why Jesus is better. He's superior. And he has demonstrated how Jesus alone is the only way and that there is nothing more that God could do for them than what he has done in the Son of God. Each, after each major teaching on Jesus, the author makes sure to warn about the danger of turning away from the gospel. He has reminded them that suffering and discipline have always been a norm for God's children, God's true children. And so Hebrews 12 concludes, as we set up the context, that the great warning passage that began in chapter 10 And so the author explains what it means to be citizens of a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Key in on this before I read chapter 13. Chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Now, does the author make plain how we are to do this? Well, let's look at the text. Chapter 13 is going to give you very specific teachings about how to do this. I'm going to focus on chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 this morning. Hear now God's holy word. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing. This is God's word. Just those two verses where I want to focus on this morning as we end the year and start a new one. In what amounts to be a postscript uh, to to this great sermon. And if you read read it out loud, it does read like a sermon. The author takes care to specify particular ways in which this true and living faith expresses and evidences itself. Faith has an evidence in our life. And so verses 1 and 2 begin the practical section for believers. And look what he starts with. He starts with love. Here's the central points. Therefore, you're in your bulletin. Our worship of God always includes loving like Jesus. That's it. Our worship of God always includes loving like Jesus. I have three points. They all begin with C. Number one. Christ. Christ must rule. Now, we are wasting our times, my brothers and sisters, if we are offsides here, to use a sports illustration. And the play is ruled dead for that infraction from the beginning. There's been some sad games overturned this year because somebody was offsides. Lost it for them. And if we don't start right here well, We're so far off the mark. The book of Hebrews at large has made plain from the beginning that the Old Testament was always about Jesus and that all the previous scriptures and persons were pointing to his superiority. Jesus is the self-expression of God. God 
the Word made flesh. He was the one that Moses and the prophets anticipated. He is everything. Without Jesus, the Son of God, we perish. Without Jesus, we don't exist. He upholds everything by the Word of His power. And so God has revealed the way, the truth, the life in Christ. So if God is is all of this and revealed all of this in Christ, we need to ask the question, going into this section about love, does God define love or do I define love? Is God love or are my feelings my God? Love is, first of all, in its base term here, a warm regard and interest in another, affection, and this term includes the idea of sacrificial care for another. Rosario Butterfield rightly observed that when the mantra of the world screams out, love is love, declares that love stands on its own with its own integrity, meaning and grace. But the Bible doesn't square with this, she says. The Bible says God is love in 1 John 4, and love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, 1 Corinthians 13. The integrity of the verb love is found in its corresponding object. It's Really stupid to say love is love, to be honest. If you love what God loves, though, then love is a moral good. But if you love what God hates, love is a twisted sin, she said in her new book. To suggest that love has integrity on its own terms is to render it an idol and to wrench it from its moral anchor, the God of the Bible. Love is love as a mantra demonstrates many people's rejection of the biblical God for idolatrous lust and really infatuation. She went on to note something here I thought was very helpful. Love is love exchanged compassion for the lost, knowing that people who live in the sin of immorality are dying in their sin in need of God's salvation and rescue, with a new definition of kindness, one that appeased sinful desires over God's power to create new creatures who progressive sanctification releases them from the bondage of sin. Love is love says you are fine as you are and the only problem you have is closed-minded Christians standing in the way of your political rights, end quote. Isn't that, though, the world's way of thinking about love? Isn't that very convenient? No wonder it has gained such popularity. But people know differently and that's why they clamor to suppress the truth as the Bible says. The idea that doctrine, by the way, is useless and divisive, that we all need to live by his love, is fantasy and foolishness. It's of the world that is pagan, that is not from God. Love itself needs a standard, and that standard is God, not man, not man's feelings. And without a standard, one's personal idea of love often will be different and frequently contradictory. Guess who? Someone else's ideas of love. Desiring, for for example, desiring another person's spouse may seem like love to the one who is desiring, but it's something quite different to their spouse. And John MacArthur said, trying to throw away doctrine while keeping ethics is like trying to keep your house intact while taking out the foundation, end quote. So this exhortation to love, we've got to root it in Christ. We've got to root it in God. Christian ethics demand right doctrine and a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And so without knowing Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you will not have the sustained desire nor the ability to live up to the New Testament's call and standards for morality. 
you must be born again. Every moral command in the New Testament presupposes faith in Christ. You cannot possibly live up to God's standards without the grace of God. Even Have you ever noticed in our church covenant, and it says, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we commit to the following? That's there deliberately. In order for the love to continue, it has to start somewhere, right? And the book of Hebrews reveals that love starts with God. And so God loved these people, and that's how they can love him back. And, how can they, and that's how they can show love to one another. God is love. It is essential. It, it, in his essential nature and in all his actions, God is loving. And that means he has regard and affection towards sinners. Love is not God, but God is love. Amen. And so the Bible anchors love in the moral love of God, teaching that Jesus is welcome to bless and affirm, but also teaches he's, uh, he's welcome to judge and to ransom sinners who provoke God's just wrath as they seek to humanize God and deify man. And so Hebrews 12 Verse 6 said, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. God is not a hateful parent appeasing bratty children, but corrects them in his word and actions. And so the biggest display of God's love and proof of his love is in the giving of Christ in substitution on the cross for you and for me. Jesus went to the cross in love for sinners like you and me who mess everything up. He went to the cross as God's promised one to be the payment for our sinful and self-serving selves. We've all been evil and, and thought evil and spoken evil in the sight of God and we deserve wrath, but not Jesus. Jesus never lied to his parents. Jesus did not envy others in their blessings. He did not lust. He did not murder. He did not have malice. He did not talk about people behind their backs and gossip. He did not lie to people's face through flattery. He did not participate in ethnic prejudice. He did not fail to show love towards those in need. He did not curse people under his breath. Jesus had every right to every earthly gift, yet he was content with the little that he had, all that the Father gave him, he, even living in poverty to serve others. Jesus never failed. He died on the cross, not as a martyr, but as the Lamb of God, given in substitution for sinners like you and me. We deserve death. We deserve eternal judgment because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus never deserved it. We are fickle. We can be big phonies. We can be huge disappointments. But Jesus never disappoints. What a mistake it would be for me today to tell you to get your eyes on you. You and I need to get our eyes on Jesus. Do you believe Jesus died for you? If you trust in him as your payment for sin and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from wrath and welcome into God's eternal love and life. It's free by his grace and it's there for you to take today if you receive him. Here's the thing. Once you receive this Jesus, this marvelous, wonderful, glorious, majestic Jesus once you receive him, you are called to walk in his love and he gives you the power to do it and no longer walk on your own. Christian love not only demands right doctrine, but a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And without that relationship with Christ, a person will neither have the sustained desire 
or the ability to live up to these standards. We've got to start with Christ. Our worship of God always includes loving like Jesus. Number two, continue in love. Starts with Christ. Now we continue in love. Verse one, let love continue. And the kind of love he's talking about here specifically is brotherly love. It is not directionless. It, like a, it's, not, it's not a directionless feeling. You've got to get worked up in your feelings and then you can go love somebody. No. It's a moral orientation towards kingdom values in this context. Love is not infatuation. People get them confused. Fools are controlled by infatuation and feelings. That is the way of the world. If believers belong, though, to the same family of God, and they do, then the Father's love must be expressed in their lives. This exhortation may have been particularly important if, as seems likely, this local church had been disrupted by divisions, rivalries, and feuds. All that to say is this church had been, like every other church, it's going through some stuff. Some bad stuff. This was not a time for everyone to get self-centered. And the basic principle of brotherly love is simple. as explained by Paul. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Romans 12.10 To put it in the most basic form, brotherly love is caring for fellow Christians more than we care for ourselves. God's people are chosen in love by God. We love because he first loved us. Again, John MacArthur observed that love, affection, care is the supreme New Testament virtue which centers completely on the needs and welfare of the one loved and does whatever necessary to meet those needs, end quote. And to be devoted to other Christians with a family sort of love, that brotherly love, not based on personal attraction or desirability is what he's talking about. This quality, Jesus said in John 13, is the primary way the world will recognize us as his disciples, by our love for one another. It has a shape. This love has a shape to it. It formalizes itself in the local church with membership that knows who the church is. And the command is, you should, you know, you should all let brotherly love continue. Don't hinder it. Let it continue. Keep at it. And so the Father, by the Spirit, has united believers to the Son. And by virtue of our union with Him, we're sons and daughters of God, and we get to show that love in the family of God. We are the family of God this morning. Amen. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, joined heirs with Jesus as I travel this sod. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Church, aren't you glad you have brothers and sisters who take an interest in you? Now, let me soapbox a little bit here. Somebody said, uh-oh. If you're not building in and regularly showing up and showing love, you will not experience love as you could. People like you and me are prone to take care of what's right in front of us, aren't we? And sometimes we forget about people because somebody else is right in front of us. So if you want to be a part of that, you have to show up. Your main ministry, church member, your main ministry is to be here. 
It's not nursery. It's not small groups. It's to be here for the word together with the saints. And look what happens from that opportunity. What will flow out from that opportunity where the word is proclaimed. As, a church, as, as such, we are brothers and sisters to one another. And members of La Plata Baptist Church, you know good and well whom you are obligated to. You promised to love them in the church covenant. And that love should be on display. Among God's people, there is, therefore, a distinct love already among them. And so the plea is that it would continue. Keep at it. This is not a call for sentiment, but to show it in tangible behavior. Here's some application. I'm going to ask questions in this application. Ask yourself if you know the life-changing power of Christ's love. And once you know the love at the cross, can't you, you can't help, let me say that, but be different. Ask yourself if you are making room to love the saints, or are you just like every other consumer-minded uh, church out there that's not who's not trusting in Jesus, but in their own self-righteousness? Ask yourself, who do you need to approach today in love right here in this assembly? Let me tell you, I get, this is, this was not in the manuscript. I may, I may suffer for saying this, but it pains me to see the same people honestly kind of ignored and not addressed and talked to, or waiting for the pastor to go talk to. That's not right. We need to have an eye for people who need encouragement. Who do you need to take an interest in today? Do you need to share with them how you are doing? Do you need to share with them truths from God's word? I'm going to assume the answer is yes. Your quiet time isn't just for you. Share something encouraging with someone. Ask yourself how to stir up love for others. Does it come by waiting on your feelings or walking by faith in truth? You sit there and wait to get worked up to show love for someone uh, you're going to be you're going to be sidelined a long time, but you have to step out in faith and walk in the truth. Ask yourself if you are talking with your family about ways to show love to others. Parents, we've got to start teaching our children this. Hey, son, did you stop and speak to anybody today? Did you ask them how they were doing? Do you know how to shake someone's hand and look them in the eye? It's that fundamental, but we need to go back to coaching. We've got to coach and say, hey, anybody can be consumed with themselves. Who did you stop and care for today? Our worship of God always includes loving like Jesus. Number three, cultivate hospitality. Cultivate hospitality, verse two. People in this church, again, as I said, needed encouragement. They were facing persecution, social, <coughs> social separation from all that was comfortable and familiar. Okay, I don't think any of us are walking in the intensity of suffering that they were. But let me say this, though. In every age, local church members need encouragement. If you're breathing, you need encouragement. And so if the elders, you know, didn't contact, what is that, that's part of the exhortation of the elders to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so people need to be aware, the church needs to know, people face isolation right here in this congregation dealing with isolation. People in this church suffer with family separation. Some are dealing just with the pains of old age, 
grief over the death of a loved one that's killing them, distant children, ongoing health challenges, and so many other issues. And this is just this little church. People are under spiritual assault in the church like you wouldn't believe. Sometimes it's their own doing, yes, but other times it's part of the battle plan that God ordained for us. And all of it's decreed and ordained of God. I understand that's under his sovereignty and under his providence. What do you find hard about sharing your life, friend? Maybe you need encouragement today. Where, where are you burnt out? Maybe you have a view of sharing your life that is more intensive than it needs to be. There's some people who need to be like, you know, jolted, start loving this church, right? And there are others who like, you need to kind of pull the, pull the plug a little bit. Hey, you're... Your, your gears are grinding. We need to slow this down some. So maybe you have a view of sharing your life that's more intensive than it needs to be. Maybe you've overdone it. Maybe you get anxiety and are not stepping out. Maybe on this side of it, maybe you have anxiety and are not stepping out in faith to love others. Maybe you're so programmed. of Your, your, your life is so slotted, so programmed that there's no room left in your life to care for someone else. To not neglect something is to instead cultivate it. And so we got to cultivate hospitality, develop it. We're not to neglect it. And so this takes a lifestyle change, doesn't it? If we are going to walk in Hebrews 13, some of us will go through lifestyle change. There are folks, let me, get, let me express this like this, illustrate. There are, some, there are folks who want marriage. They talk this game, oh, I want to get married. But they don't want the challenges that come with being married. You know, some women perhaps marry a woman for, excuse me, marry a man. There's no system. There's only a heterosexual marriage. Some women marry a man for companionship, but often don't want the testosterone of the man's urges or the husband's emotional makeup. They're like, ah, I don't like him. Well, you married him. And some men often marry a woman for companionship, physical intimacy, but they don't want to deal with physical, emotional, and hormonal differences biologically. It takes the word to help both of them realize that marriage will be a lifestyle change and it brings with it real demands on both. Am I telling the truth? It's true. In the life of a Christian, which includes real obligations, read the New Testament, in the local church, it demands lifestyle changes too. We need to face them like adults, not like self-centered individuals. That's who I am naturally. I love me. I can be so here, and I bet you can too. Do you have room in your life to show acts of real care for others? In the ancient world, hospitality typically involved inviting strangers, that's the, that's the real sense of the text, into one's home, caring for them and meeting their needs. Ancient inns, as one scholar put it, full of prostitutes and thieves were often unsuitable lodging for believers. And in Christian context, hospitality often meant caring for traveling missionaries and preachers. And the importance of hospitality towards visiting brothers and sisters, carrying on the work of the church is apparent throughout the New Testament. Missionaries, itinerant preachers, leaders of the movement were especially dependent on the hospitality of their fellow believers along the way. Read 3 John, where Gaius is praised for his hospitality toward visiting Christians. And, and then Diotrephes is, is censured for his refusal of extending hospitality and his attempts to prevent others from exercising this ministry. 
the apostles depended on the hospitality of church members. I've been on missions trips where we depended on the hospitality of, of church members. I've gone to uh, conferences where, thank God, there was a, a member of the church who would let me stay with them. The houses, the houses of the more endowed believers in the in the old, uh, in the excuse me, in the in, the, in these uh, early church days, were um, uh, of the more endowed believers became the meeting place. Sometimes that was the place where the church met was in so and so's home. Constant fellowship and meeting to preserve the church's uh, unity and distinctive witness. And so hospitality had a large uh, purpose of connecting the body. And this again indicates the, the new proposal, but a, not a new proposal, but reinforcement of generous concern for others. The term here, welcomed, envisaged, you know, it's not directed um, toward members of their own group, but toward strangers. However, I want to note the context is brotherly love. And the reference to angels in the passage also probably indicates visiting Christians are especially in mind in showing hospitality. And so the ancient Christian, even the ancient Christian document, the Didache, provides a vivid picture of the demands of traveling Christian workers. Uh, and as he grounds this command, the author states that some have entertained angelic beings who appeared in human form. And there are times where God appears in human form in the Old Testament. It's called a theophany. Abraham had such an experience in Genesis 18, remember? He entertained three men in Mamre, one of them turned out to be God. In our context, we do not have where we are at La Plata Baptist on a regular basis, I, or in some sense of the word, itinerant missionaries coming through perhaps as much. But we do have ways to foster fellowship and care in the homes that God has given us. And outside of the practice of showing care and hospitality, our fellow church members, if we don't do this, if we don't begin finding some way to fellowship with each other, what happens is we remain strangers to one another inside of a local church. You know that. We're a small church, but there's times where I'm like, I don't think they know each other. How can we get to know each other's testimonies of salvation? How do we know about each other's sufferings and joys and struggles and sins? We have to give space for it, brethren. We cannot neglect hospitality. Here are some ideas. We can host our men's and women's groups when other hosts need a break and have it at someone else's home. We can do drop-in visits with some of our more shut-in members. Sometimes you just don't call. You just show up and surprise them. I'm definitely starting trouble now. We can offer to set up a room for a potential intern uh, to serve. Maybe more than one intern if a room opens up in the life of the church. We can prepare basic meals for folks to come over and get away from the pain that they may be facing in their own home. You know, sometimes the best thing we do is get somebody out of their house, which has been under a lot of... Uh, difficulty and bring them into, into our home for a, just a little while. We can set up our lives to meet folks for coffee. Uh, some here today, your home right now is a stressful place and you are suffering and you need to stop bringing folks in and start letting them care for you. Some of you need to receive hospitality. The hospitality of Jesus welcoming us 
compels us to open our lives to others. Jesus has welcomed us to the marriage supper of the Lamb himself. You have room built into, let me just, let me stay like this and then I can clarify. Do you have room built in each month to either be welcomed into someone's life or welcome them into yours? Not in a legalistic way, but do you at least aspire, some, set some reasonable goals to, you know, I need to be involved. I need to show care for brother or sister so-and-so and also allow them into my life. If you don't, you will remain strangers with your own small church. Others need to stop waiting on some members to do it all. Some folks need to stop on waiting on someone else to do it all. Church, I would encourage you, talk to your Heavenly Father about this in prayer. Talk with your pastors about this. They care about you. They want to encourage you. I wish more members would ask me about who they can encourage. I have a list of folks I think need particular encouragement. And I'm dying for a member to say, point me, Pastor. I will point you today. I'll do it today. It's discouraging to see folks who need care. Nothing happens. It's exciting, though, to hear when God's using folks to care for people in the church. And I, I would, it would be a misplacement of the sermon today if I didn't highlight, I can be so deeply encouraged when I see that happening in the life of our church. But I want to keep it in front of you. The spirit of the text is, let brotherly love, keep it going. Hospitality, keep at it, church. Don't neglect it. Let me conclude. Friends, Jesus' love in the church is one of the most important ways we adorn the gospel. Opening our homes, opening our lives with others attracts, by God's mysterious design, those who are also without Christ. This upcoming year, I want to challenge every one of you to think about how you're doing and what you're trying to take it, how you, who you're trying to take an interest in and how you're going to take an interest in your fellow church members this year. Yes, even the ones you find difficult like Pastor Garrett. I'll put, my, I'll put myself at the top of the list. Do not amen, Michael. Do not do it. <laughs> Spread, friends, the love of Christ. Love people in your church whom you have covenanted to do so, not just in reciting it, but actually in real person, in real life-to-life situations. You will never be best friends with everyone. That's not realistic. But you can be one fantastic brother and sister in the Lord. I can't be everybody's best friend, That's, I, I, and neither can you. But I want to be the best brother I can be. And watch what God does with those relationships. Let's pray. Lord, you have loved us like none other. And Lord, you have loved us, Lord, not to leave us and focus on ourselves, but Lord, so that we might share the love of Jesus, Lord, with our brothers and sisters, and that it might spill over to those who are not yet brothers and sisters. So Lord, we pray that our worship of you would always have in view deliberate attempts to show care towards our fellow members of the church. Help us, Lord. Give us eyes to see people who need encouragement today. Lord, you saw us. You pursued us. You sought us and you bought us. Make our love like Jesus. Make our love like Jesus' love, Lord. 
for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I love you, church. Let's